Hello, and welcome to the Digital Workspace Works podcast. I'm Ryan Purvis, your host, supported by our producer, Heather Bicknell. In this series, you'll hear stories and opinions from experts in the field, stories from the front lines, the problems they face and how they solve them, the areas they're focused on from technology, people and processes, to the approaches they took that will help you to get to the scripts for the Digital Workspace inner workings. Uh, can you just introduce who you are? I'm Amanda Brock. I'm CEO of Open UK, the industry organisation for the business of open source. Uh, before becoming CEO of Open UK, I spent about 25 years as a lawyer, many of them in the tax sector, and five of them setting up and running the company Canonicals legal team. Um, so, so let's start with with the Open UK. I mean, what what is that? Well, how would you explain to someone at a coffee at a coffee? Table. Yeah, how would I explain to someone? So I usually start by explaining open source software, and uh, I do that by talking about copyright, which your average punter will start to glaze over when you mention copyright. <laughs> but you know, I ask if they understand what it is, and they'll always say yes. And you know, I explain that it stops anybody else using your thing. So the thing with software that we've all experienced. Um, over the last couple of decades, because copyright was applied to software, so when someone codes, copyright's applied to it, you can't mm-hmm. use someone else's software unless they say you can. Yeah. And that's allowed companies to make money. That's how they've set up their structures and their business models over many, many years. And you know, most people know that they pay a company a license for the software they run on their computers. So that much they they will generally understand no matter how deep their knowledge or understanding of either law or technology is. And I'll then explain to them about code having two forms, human readable and computer readable. So you have the the human readable code, which is what you see developers sitting typing. They do it in multiple languages. That Mm. language uh, is like learning German or French, right? If you speak the language, you'll understand what they're writing. And then most people have also seen a computer screen whizzing as it compiles. So that's a recognizable thing to explain to them. And uh, I'll explain that that's the computer compiling it so that it understands it in the computer language, the ones and zeros that they will also generally have seen somewhere in their lives. Now, once you've got them engaged with that, explaining that that human readable language has a value and that value, if you keep it secret, is that you have control because if a human can't mm. understand the code, you have control. And that piece where you keep that secret, you make it your secret sauce, allows you to build models or build revenue and build commercialization around software. And that's what we've all become used to over several decades, whether it's in business or on the consumer level. And if you can understand that what open source does is share that and make it collaborative, if you've got no experience whatsoever of open, I think that's a really great introductory point. And once you understand that this is about sharing that, not necessarily making money in that way, not that you won't make money in another way. Um, Hmm. And then maybe if they're still engaged, get into how collaboration works better in creating code, that it's not really a solitary pursuit. And if you can recycle and reuse, enhance what's already there and bounce things off other people, 
Um, I think Lena says that uh, one of the beauties of open source is it makes bugs shallow. You know, many eyes make bugs shallow. And once mm. people start to understand that, it makes a lot of sense to them. So from there, I would maybe, if there's still interest, start to explain the socio-political movement and the history. And a lot of people mm. get quite engaged with that because they see equity in it. And we're in a, a societal time where we're looking at DEI, you know, we're looking at diversity, we're looking at equity, we're looking at inclusion and creating that equity in business resonates with people at the moment. So if you can explain the practical, here's what open source code is, and you get them engaged with that equity of business by collaboration and co-opetition amongst businesses, I think they can see how that creates a fair environment. And of course, the importance right now is that we are seeing the world digitalize. The pandemic has mm. only you know, put that right in focus and under the lens. So if you accept that the world is digitalizing, that means that business is providing you with services digitally. Governments service their people digitally. Inevitably, because of the uptake of open source, they're going to be using it. And if people can see how that can be used in a way that's fairer, that starts to get more engagement and more discussion around it. And that's often when I'll start to take people into things like open data and open hardware. And within Open UK, what we're about is the business of open technology. And for us, open technology is open source software, open hardware and open data, because we think you need to bring the three together at this point in history. So when you say, so, so open source, I have obviously had some exposure to. I've never really heard yeah. of open hardware or open data yeah. per se. I mean, the, the closest I've seen to maybe as an example of open data is the, the open banking um, framework now yeah. where you can, you can bank with Barclays but see your Monzo account in the same app. Um, exactly. Exactly. So opening up the API, making it interoperable and putting requirements mm. around um, that data make a big, big difference. And open banking is an example. It's an example that was required by legislation. So MIFID, the, the financial regulations required the banks to do that. And it was driven by that. Uh, we're seeing it in other areas like energy right now, where they are not yet, although I think there's a fair chance they will be, they're not yet regulated, but the energy sector is looking at how does it open up. And I think we'll increasingly see that happen with our utilities and services, you know, not just banking and energy. But what open data is, is ways of collaborating. Now, it doesn't mean that your personal private data has to be shared. And it tends to be very respectful of, or if it's done well, very respectful of GDPR, which is obviously changing now. We've just seen the consultation come out last week uh, for the UK at least, but for our data privacy and data protection. And there's also this big shift to, um, and you've probably seen data and digital sovereignty happening across the globe. Mm. So what we see with opening up data is finding ways that data that isn't breaching your privacy can be opened up and shared. And actually, again, the UK's got a massive presence in this space. So we have a couple of um, well-known organizations that do the running on the open data. We've got the Open Data Institute, which Tim Berners-Lee and others were behind. 
uh, which is based out of King's Cross, actually. Their office is just behind King's Cross near the the Guardian in London. And the ODI uh, is actually one of our partners at COP26. And then the Open Knowledge Foundation, which is also set up by someone from the UK and based in the UK. And the Open Knowledge Foundation has become a sort of standard setter bit like the open source initiative that manages the licenses in open source software. So it sort of accredits licenses as being compliant. So we, we actually have a really strong presence in the UK, not just in open source software, but across the opens. And then when we look at open hardware, what you've got there is hardware specifications. It's the area that I, I would say personally I'm, I've done least in and that I'm weakest mm. on, but we have got a number of people who are really expert in it. And the way they explain it is that software and hardware start to merge at a point when you get into chips and into silicon. So yeah. uh, there seem to be a, an accepted need for those three to come together. And I think Open UK is the first organization that's from an open source uh, software perspective, or really from any of the three opens that's made that shift and committed publicly to being about the three. Others are doing it. We've seen the Open Source Initiative approve a license this year, um, an open source software license, uh, the CERN license, which also includes hardware. And that's the first time we've seen one of these dual licenses being approved. So, you know, that that move is happening. Organizations like Eclipse Foundation and Linux Foundation are starting to bring in projects that are very much about data. Mm -hmm. So I think we'll see everybody go in that direction. Yeah, I mean, my, the one thing that I remember uh, working in one of the banks that, that we were hesitant to use open source software was was around the licensing specifically, um, yeah. where I think it was something around the contribution to, to so if you use the software, even though you weren't contributing to the um, the actual code itself, mm -hmm. in using it, anything you did with it would then become owned by the that software base, if it makes any sense. Uh, yeah, so exactly that's not right. That. Yeah, no, that's yeah. not right. And that's, um, there can be a lot of confusion. And I think that if we just pause, before I explain to you why that's not right, if we mm -hmm. pause and talk about confusion, it's something that I have a huge concern around. So what we've seen is a shift in the last decade, and we can talk a bit more about how that's happened. A lot of it's down to GitHub and that developers left to their own mm. devices will go and choose code that's the best code, but they can do it via public repositories like GitHub and GitLab without going through procurement or legal. So they can go off and get what they want, they can try it out, and then when they know that it works in their business, then they can go through that process if they need to buy services, or they can just carry on using it for free. Now, there is a, a bit of FOD, less so today than there ever used to be, around licensing. And there are two kinds of copyright licensing for open source software in their simplest form, copyleft and permissive licenses. Now, with a copyleft license, you can use as much as you like, but if you modify and distribute code, then that mm. copyleft license and a strong copyleft license, and you know, there's the shades of everything, but in a strong copyleft license, there's a, a sort of waterfall effect where what you reshare, if it's combined, if it's in a derivative work and you reshare it, it needs to become 
licensed under that same license. So it's not an ownership shift, it's a licensing shift. The second kind of licensing is permissive, which lets you do pretty much what you want, something like MIT, BSD, and none of that is relevant to it. If we go back to that copyleft piece, so the concern has always been, and you'll hear terms that the folks who are fans of copyleft really dislike, like infected. So your your proprietary code will be infected by open source copyleft. And that um, that doesn't need to happen. And that comes mm. down to your governance and how you manage it. So if you are applying good housekeeping, proper governance to open source, the way that you combine copyleft code with your own proprietary code, if you have such a thing, will be done so that you don't create a derivative work and so that that license consequence doesn't happen. Now, that mm. comes back to governance. And what we're seeing in open source and increasingly in businesses is the rise of what currently are being called the open source program offices. So with an open source program office, or anybody doing your governance around open source, there are certain policies, certain practices that corporates and businesses using open source should use. And those would be things like tracking the code coming into your business, knowing where you got it from, timestamping it so that you can track updates and fixes. So what we, we see is that open source program offices and the, the governance teams who are doing this well are managing how code comes in. They're managing what can be used with what licenses internally. So you might be happy in your processes for permissive code to be used. Copyleft code might need an approval or you might have a technical fix so that the issue is whether or not you combine code to create a derivative work. So it's like cracking eggs, right? If you crack eggs and make an omelette, you can't unwind them. If you um, fry two eggs, even if they touch, you can separate them. And it's about the technical um, solutions that allow you to manage it. So all of your policies, all of your processes should be in place as part of your governance. And this is the bit that worries me. The bit that worries me is that we don't have enough skills and we need to develop those skills more so people understand those basics. So although we see this massive rise in open source utilization, we need to see a correlated rise in understanding and governance. And that's the piece that we're trying to help fix in the UK with our skills yeah. development. And that starts grassroots with, you know, quite young kids in our kids camps, just socializing some of the basic concepts with them. Then we plan to go on to more formal education, both in the academic sense with the, the school certification and qualification and in the practical sense in apprenticeships. So you don't just learn to code um, Python, you also learn that actually Python itself is open source, it's on a license, and why open source is the way it is and how you deal with good governance. And then you get to the stage where you're looking at tertiary education and even business. And we have um, a founders forum and an entrepreneur in residence, Matt Barker, who are about to launch a program where they'll be mentoring and training people who are founders or future founders of open source startups. So we're looking at that full spectrum of education and skills development in the UK. You know, the reason why we're speaking is, is a link through through Freddie and joining the dots um, yeah. and digital inclusion, which um, I think what you're talking about now is, is a huge shift. Um, and it's definitely not something I've seen a lot of at the grassroots level personally. So I'm very interested to know what, you know, what kids think on it. I don't know if you, 
if they jump on it and, and, as, and as excited as they should be or is yeah. it a bit of a... Do you know, I think um, you should take a look at last year's camp and have a look at it. Uh, it's hashtag um, Open Kids Camp on Twitter. We had the most amazing response and we gave away over 3,000 gloves last year in our first year. And it was kind of heartwarming if I don't sound too cheesy to get, well, you know, I got feedback. There were pictures of like little kids who some of them younger than the, they ought to have been to be doing this because it, it's it's targeted at key stage three. So the first few years of secondary school, high school, um, okay. kids who, you know, there was one who had been nervous of even putting the glove on and mm. wouldn't have believed they could do anything, who was coding to make the glove respond to gestures and make sounds no it's block coding wow. it's simple coding but you know the excitement and i think because the glove is musical and because it is inspired by maimu now maimu is a glove that imogen heap uses and imogen created it about a decade ago i did a little bit of pro bono legal work on it for back a decade ago which is how i met her and um, Imogen's glove is, you know, really popular. It's used in all sorts of movies and all sorts of musicians use it today. But famously, Ariana Grande toured with it back in 2015. Imogen actually took me. I don't know if I've ever shared this with anyone. But Imogen took me and a, a child that I was looking after to the concert at the O2. And we went backstage afterwards and met Ariana, who had been performing, you know, through the evening with the glove. It's quite amazing. And... Um, I think girls are kind of inspired, you know, girls in particular, by that and think, oh, I'll give mm. this a try and then accidentally start coding. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it's an add-on almost. If I want to make this glove make the music, then I need to be able to code. And uh, that, that's that been really rewarding. And then Imogen actually presented the awards last year. She gave the winners their prizes, uh, the kids' prizes, and uh, all done digitally, sadly. But uh, it was really exciting, and it was great to see them interacting with her. But they'd all made these sort of creative videos, and they'd programmed their gloves to do different things. Some of them have even got as far as lighting and, you know, dance with the music. It was amazing. Do you want to see what we're doing? I can show yeah, you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that'd be good. So what we have is um, a glove kit inspired by the Maimu glove, which looks like this. Okay. In, and you can see it says made in the UK by Open UK. And into that, you put your micro bit here, battery pack here. Okay. And then um, down here, if you've got a microbit one, you need a speaker. So your speaker attaches with crocodile clips here. If you've got yeah. microbit two, you don't need a speaker. And we are giving away 3,800 of these. Um, okay. Box of 30 will go to 100 community groups and schools. And they will get with that the speaker and clips. And then we've got 1,200 for digitally excluded kids, which will be filtered through schools and community groups. And for them... They've got a micro bit to USB cable, battery pack, connectors, all that sort of stuff. So, so is a micro bit like a, like a Raspberry Pi? Sort of, yeah. It's um, open source. It's UK produced. It was originally called the BBC Microbit Arm, and the BBC put a lot of funding into it. Um, okay. And it's just a little board. Oh, cool. That's very cool. So uh, the Microbit Foundation is also in the UK that runs the whole, yeah. Um, yeah. I suppose, the infrastructure around it. And there are other devices that you can use with the Microbit. 
So in year one, we had a creative director, a chap called um, David Whale, who's in the EdTech Hall of Fame, who did the content for us for the course. And David has been working with a UK company, Monkmate, who have produced the speakers for us this year. And Monkmates and David have produced this little windmill that's powered by the Microbit, um, a sustainability learning tool. So you okay. can take your Microbit and get one of those. We've actually got those amongst our prizes for uh, we'll run our course and then we'll run a competition. And the way the course works is we start releasing on the 27th then we release uh, what we call an episode every week with a gap for two weeks in October around half term. Mm-hmm. And an episode is between 10 and 20 minutes long. It's an animated lesson. Um, there are 10 and they're themed on the open source definition. So, you know, open source is for everyone because you can't discriminate against users of open source. Uh, you can't discriminate against uh, fields of use. So we cover that in one of the lessons, those kind of things. So we take those 10 open source definitions, one per lesson, and then we wrap that around an activity using, I think, nine out of 10 using the glove, but all using the micro bit. And mm. five of them you learn to code using make code, which is the language that the microbit uses. It was created by Microsoft. It's a block code language. So five of them are not a language, it's block code. Five of them use make code, four use Python, and one uses Java. And that move into Python is something specific to this year. So each episode has one lesson. Content was created this year, not by David, although he he consulted on it and he guided, but by a young lady called Luena Hull. And Luena was 19 in April. She's in her second year at Cambridge in Robinson College. And last year she was a mentor on the program, on the, the camp that we did. This year she's created the the uh, coding activities and she's our creative director for the, the lessons. But with each lesson, we also have an easing. And it's a digital easing that I guess you could print out if you wanted to. Uh, there are various pieces of code and instructions in the lessons that are replicated in that as a reference point. But also we've got a number of interviews with people across open. We have a, a column about sustainability, um, from our chief sustainability officer and the Open Data Institute have given us content too. So it broadens out quite a lot. But sustainability for us is a big theme across all of this. And we introduce the, the kids to the sustainable development goals if they don't already know them. And we talk about how tech interrelates with those as we go through it um, because it's such a big deal for us. And then it will all culminate for us with a competition uh, December, January, uh, which will be announced when it will be announced at Easter time. But on the 11th of November, we have a space at COP26 and we're going to be in the the cordon, the official UN government hosted area, which has a couple of buildings, the Hydro and the SECC, where the world leaders will be meeting, where businesses will be showing them you know, lots of different demos and proposals around uh, net zero. But we'll actually be in the only fringe event which is in that cordon and we're hosting the open technology and sustainability day there on the 11th of november wow sounds like a packed packed it's packed it's packed (laughs) so we're now partnering with the british computer society with the microbit foundation with okidu who's helped us make the gloves and a, a number of other partners and we will be using that space to look at the 
the way skills are developed in young people in the UK and uh, how computer science is taught in the UK, but particularly thinking about open source and open technology in that space, because we know that there's a massive shortage, despite the fact that we are one of the top countries in the world in open source, there is a massive shortage of skills in this space. And that's not going to go away because it's become mainstream. So we're really keen to help kids develop. And then over time, hopefully at some stage next year, we'll have a knowledge module for apprenticeship schemes and a form of certification. We're still sort of fathoming whether that's a GCSE or a Scottish hire, what it's going to be. But that will be a follow on from the course, starting to go deeper into some curriculum around open source. So if someone wants a glove, I mean, because you're just reading them to, to kids, as you, as you mentioned earlier, could someone buy them off your website? Or, or? No, we don't sell them. And the uh, you can actually, MyMoo have open sourced the, the glove. So they've open sourced on, um, I think it's a solder pad license, the template for the glove. So you could go and cut your own one out and stitch it and then buy the components. Uh, We are giving away 5,000 of them and we hope to give away more in the future. But through September, you can register openuk.uk backslash open kids camp and you can have a free glove. We have 800 for individuals. We also have 3,000 available to schools in boxes of or community groups in boxes of 30. So up to 100 schools will get a box of 30. I keep saying schools, but it's schools and community groups. And then we have a further 1,200. Now, you need a micro bit to use the glove. And we're assuming that you have one if you're applying for one of those 3,800 kits. And there is um, the, the UK supply chain is filled. So schools have them. You know, I went to my sister who's not particularly techie and there's three in her household. She's got a seven oh, really? nine. Wow. So it's it's a norm. But uh, yeah. if you don't have one and you need one, you can borrow them from libraries in the UK too. Um, oh, wow. So, you know, they're out there. For kids who are digitally excluded, we are giving through community groups and people who, like Freddie, who introduced us, who have helped join the dots and get these kids tablets and... Um, uh, laptops and things to access their education over the last year or so, we've got 1,200 that are complete with microbit twos. And they're actually, you know, I think they're about 25, 30 pounds just cost. So it's quite a good giveaway. Mm. And if you want one of those, you'll find this email on our website at the same place. But if you contact Ashley Monagle, and it's A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H dot M-O-N-A-G-L-E at openuk.uk, Ashley is divvying up those 1,200. And we'll start to distribute those next week. The course will come out on the 27th. You can do it at your own pace. So we pump mm. these out every week, but people organize you know, and do it in groups. You should be able to do it individually. And we've had a, a wonderful teacher, Pamela Bowl, up in Scotland, help us with the curriculum to make sure that it matches Key Stage 3. And not just yeah. from the English perspective, but hopefully across the UK. That link was Kids Camp, eh? did you say? Yeah, openuk.uk backslash open kids camp. Open kids camp. So I'm just looking at your website now. Yeah. And there's two forms there, one for the, the packs of 30 and one for the individual that you can follow through with. And you should find Ashley's email there too. Yeah, yeah, I've got it, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. We'll, put the, we'll put the link in the, in the show notes so that it's there. Right, uh, thank you. 
And you say key, so when you say key stage three, that's like yeah. 10, 10 to 13 year olds, that sort of age gap? I think it's more sort of 11 to 15. So first year of high okay. school through to the third year, first to third year. So what we, we decided was not to go for the sort of GCSE level because we knew that the kids are too busy. You know, they do, they've got their exams to focus on and they've been through an awful lot in the last couple of years. We don't need mm-hmm. to be burdening them with more. There is no restriction on who can apply. I mean, it's one per sure. person for the 800, but, you know, if you're younger or older and you want to do it, feel free. But it's matched mm. to that curriculum. Okay. Yeah, just, that sort of phrase I haven't heard before, key stage three. So I wasn't trying, I was trying yeah. to picture where, where that was. Okay. And um, so, so we talk about open hardware being specifications. Um, is, is that almost... Um, so that everyone, you know, it's, it's like the plugs problem. Every country has a, its own plug or its own structure of a plug, which which makes traveling difficult. This is to try and cut that sort of thing out. Where it allows interoperability in that way. So yes, uh, it's like if you look at electric vehicle charging. When you're talking about the plugs, you know, um, Tesla yeah. has its own plug. Everybody else is using things on standards. So in a way, it is more of that sort of standardization. Yeah. Okay. Allows it and, opens and, up and allows interoperability, so it allows you to interface. It's like building open APIs. Hmm. Hmm. And is that taken up quite a lot or quite well? That's a, that's a new concept for me, so I'm curious to know. It's relatively new, but it is rapidly gaining traction. So, you know, there have been folk working on it. I think Andrew Back, who's up in Yorkshire, created something called the Open Source Hardware Users Group, OSHUG. And I remember going <laughs> to an event that they at OSHUG had about a decade ago, and they had um, – Printers, 3D printers. And the way that worked was the license allowed you to print the components and build Mm. your own printer if you were that way minded or inclined. So you could just take it and, you know, see one, build one. And the condition was that you had to teach someone else how to make it. It's just kind of nice. Wow. Because I had, I had, I mean, I'm reading a book, funny enough, it's all about auto, auto factories. And it's probably the same concept that an auto factory can build another auto factory. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and that creates a capacity. And obviously you spend time building your factories to build up capacity. And once they're all built, then you can start pushing out all the things you need mm-hmm. um, with, your, with your army of, of water factories. Okay. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's pretty cool. And what we, what we see is more and more of this where people are collaborating and opening it up. And we see it not just... I guess the the reputation, you know, years ago was a bunch of sort of sandal wearing hippies in their mom's basements, and it, it's shifted so far from there. Yeah. And what we see yeah. is this, you know, it's a it's a global collaboration. It is a global movement. It's not local source. It's open source, so it's open and worldwide. And despite you know geopolitical shift, things like Brexit, we still continue to collaborate cross border, and it allows in itself a diversity. But business is really adopting it. And we, we see business adoption goes through a process where they, they might start by using it. Now, a decade ago, most businesses, legal teams, whatever, would have told you against company policy and engineers would have smiled because they were using it. But now it's understood that it's being used and the companies go on a journey and that journey moves them to collaboration. Um, there's a concept, co-opetition, where you, you cooperate on something, but you still compete and we're seeing yeah. more and more of that. And I think we'll see it more and more sectorially as things like the energy sector opens up. 
And then other sectors will learn from that. And the companies who've been involved in that specific to their sector, I believe we'll see it happen more in their supply chains as time goes by. Yeah, because you mentioned earlier about the people make money somehow. And I was thinking about the likes of, say, Mozilla, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Mozilla? Yeah, Mozilla is an open yeah. source built browser, right? Yeah, um, so it's Firefox and, and, is there, yeah. Yeah, sorry, Firefox is the, is the actual yeah. one. And, and they make their money in various ways, one of which is they receive funding yeah. from Google, I think, um, for using Google, Google revenue, search. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so what, I mean, if, if you're explaining open source and it sounds like you said, you know, guys in the hippies in the, in the garage, how do you convince people that it's a good way to go and is, is commercially viable ways to make money? I mean, what, yeah. what are those ways? Well, this is a a big area. And funnily enough, and I know you don't know this, um, I have a book that was supposed to be coming out end of this year. I think it may get pushed back to January. Um, And it's with Oxford University Press, Free and Open Source Software Law Policy Practice. I'm afraid the title isn't particularly catchy, but it's a second (laughs) edition. And uh, it's the only time you will ever see my name as the editor in the front of this book because it it was a labor of love through lockdown. But my chapter is on commercialization. And that's what we are going to be teaching into this uh, future founders sessions, you know, product development, um, commercialization, because everybody needs to eat, right? Everybody needs to be able to make enough money and to be rewarded for their endeavors. Although there is also this massive volunteering element to it. And um, what we see is different ways. Sometimes it's the sale of add-on services. Sometimes it's the sale of proprietary software bells and whistles that go with the open piece. Sometimes it's tailoring it. Uh, there's been a bit of a shift with cloud. So, you know, 12, 14 years ago, you would have seen a slightly different model from today. But often you'll see what's called open core, where they, the base code is opened up and shared and then further up the stack there are there is code that differentiates that is sold and you see a very similar model when companies collaborate so if you think about it in this day every company needs similar software as its base point and often they'll go to a third party and buy something like that in the cloud when you get into sectors or types of production you can either all go out and build your own competing base platforms or you can collaborate mm-hmm. and create something that becomes a standard, whether that's a formal standard or a de facto standard. And just the reality is that you're all using this, which then means it's easier for the supply chain to manage as well. So if they're supplying, say, automotive manufacturing, automotive manufacturing uses a common platform, it's easy to build into your supply chain how you work with that. And that opening up um, of the bits that you don't need to compete on is critical to that co-opetition model. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, through my, my career, how we've built software from scratch and bought a library or something like, or a piece of software to add on to the software. And that, that piece of software would have had two licenses. It would have the open source license or the community version, and then you'd have the commercial version. And usually the commercial version would have um, a guarantee, more SLA kind of stuff. It'll guarantee performance, it'll guarantee uptime. Um, you'd have an expert that you could you could reach out to. Yeah. To you. 
And it's not so much a license there. What you're looking at is buying a service on top of the, the license, right? And I think that's yeah. the sort of enterprise model that we see companies like Red Hat do. And that there's two sort of ways of doing that. There's a subscription. Now, that mm. works for Red Hat. I believe Suze, I, I know less about Suze, but I believe Suze does something similar. But Red Hat in particular are very close to the, the Linux kernel that beyond anybody else. I think their sale to IBM was the biggest tech transaction in history. I know it was at the time. I think it still is. Um, so I'm sure somebody will correct me if that's not the case. But you see an open source company based on that subscription model achieving mm. that, right? So it shows you it can be done. Some of the others use a more support-based model, uh, less subscription-focused, where you are buying you know, support contracts year on year. And I think that can be harder. And what is evolving around that space increasingly is multi, um, multi-vendor, multi multi-product support. So you'll see companies like Percona not just support their own product, but support their competitors' products, knowing that um, you know, in that database space, a company might want to be running multiple databases. And I think that multi-product helps a lot in the business model. Where we see companies struggle with an open source business model, it's often, not exclusively, but often the case that they're very dependent on a single product. And in a cloud environment, the problem with that is you can have something where you're, you know, you've vested your whole business on one product and you know, a week later it's a feature in the cloud, just the way things shift at the moment. And that yeah. that's a problem that has been sort of thrown at the open source door but actually it's an issue that applies in the proprietary space equally and there's a lot of work being done around the uh, proprietary software licenses and small proprietary companies in the cloud space equally to the open source companies. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, So you mentioned, because you mentioned governance and I was thinking about how do you how do you tie that all together? And I'm assuming there's a part of that that's information security as well. Or you yeah. Or yeah. Making, cause, cause you know, a lot of these projects I, I can imagine guys just, you know, pushing in code. Um, and if you look at the, the solar winds thing, a couple, well, a couple of months ago now, that's almost the yeah. same example where, where they, yeah. they blamed an intern, but actually the governance was the problem. Well, that's uh, it. It's not, you know, it's the same. Do you remember it? Um, was it Equifax and something similar where they said somebody hadn't done an update? And you're always going to have human error. You're always going to have an individual mm. not doing something right. You're never going to be able to exclude human error unless you find a way of doing that with AI. You know, humans are fallible, but your governance ought to be in place. And those processes should be sort of uh, in your DNA, I guess. And that takes time. What we've what we find in open source that I actually find quite pleasing, and I would make a case that open source is going to be less risk as time goes by than proprietary. So even the lawyers have been collaborating for the last decade and getting a bunch of lawyers to share their secret sauce and work together is pretty tough. Um, but they have been. And what we now have is uh, a number of projects which offer that governance, and two of them have recently been ISO accredited. So there is Open Chain, which looks at 
policies and procedures. You can use the content for free. You can um, sign up and get the accreditation for being Open Chain compliant. But Open Chain, which is a, a Linux Foundation project, also you can go in and find <coughs> the policies and the procedures and uh, you take that and use that yourself without paying. So those are open tools that are available. There is also um, SPDX, which is, uh, again, a Linux Foundation project, again, ISO accredited, I think, two weeks ago. And SPDX is a, an SBOM, a software bill of material, and that works with supply chain and looks at how you can uh, accredit and certify your supply chain through the SPDX documentation. Now, that's going to be really important because if you've seen the US, I think, are taking a world leading position on this and, you know, we're looking at what they're doing. Biden, I think back in May, if my memory serves me well, released an ordinance that Open UK's legal group responded to. And in it, they it was on security and they specifically drilled down into how software would be managed in the open source space in the supply chain and asked for these S-bombs. So, and one of the reasons I think Open is going to be in a better place here is we are seeing a collaborative response from the industry to yeah. those concerns. And I think there's a couple of things. One is uh, uh, security and another is sustainability. And that's why we already have a chief sustainability officer in place at Open UK and we're working, we've created a sustainability policy. We're working on our procedures. All of that's Creative Commons and anyone can go in and take what we've done and you know use it themselves and share it. The second piece is the security piece. And before the end of the month, we will be announcing a chief security officer who will be working with the security advisory board. And what we're hoping there, you didn't know this again, your questions are great. And we'll be aiming to help both business and the public sector and government to understand how to do this well. Now, it's not that mm. we're going to be going off and creating things from scratch. We'll become a bit of a funnel um, and a sounding board for them for the UK. And again, we'll look at what other countries like the US are already doing and we'll learn from other people and collaborate internationally. Back in July, we changed our purpose. And we, when we sort of set up in the iteration we're in around open technology back in January 2020, our purpose was UK leadership and to develop and sustain UK leadership in open technology. But the reality is we're on a global playing field and we've been collaborating. Mm. We've joined all the big organizations and we work with them. So we've shifted that purpose and we now are about UK leadership in open technology and global collaboration. So we aim to encourage that leadership and collaboration. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the. I mean, that's a good move because if you look at what the pandemic has done, it has opened everyone's eyes to what's possible beyond geographic borders. Exactly. Um, and uh, yeah, that's impressive. So, if anyone wants to get in, in contact with you to to leverage the, um, what do you call yourselves, an association, I guess. Uh, yeah, so we, we tend to talk about ourselves as being an industry body and you're talking mm. about business models. Ours is evolving. Anybody can take part. So you don't have to pay anything to be part of our organization. There are a number of work groups. We have about 130 people volunteering across our ambassadors, leadership team and board, and then a variety of different work groups, you know, working on things like awards. Our legal group uh, work on legal and policy stuff, group looking at future mobile. Um, 
and then of course our future telco and then of course the stuff that we're doing on COP26 but if anybody wants to contact us uh, admin at openuk.uk and Sophie who will get your message there will point you in the direction of the right person and uh, one thing I should have said to you, I know we're getting ready to wrap up, is that the book that's coming out with OUP is actually going to be yeah. open access. So we've managed to secure funding from the Veach Foundation. So anybody who wants to have access to that book will be able to in the spring without paying for the access. Oh, so we say open access is basically a free book. Oh, cool. Yeah. But now, well, you can so, buy so, it too if you like. <laughs> well, because because I was about to say I've I've seen I've seen this model where um, someone will, will write a book and they'll leave the book online as a web as like a web version and you can have that yeah. part for free. Yeah. But if you want to download the book onto your Kindle or or, or buy the hard copy, then you pay. Because yeah, you have to pay for the hard copy, which makes sense because, you know, uh, we, although I was saying that, we also have sponsorship to give away a couple of hundred of those. But we, the e-reader and the PDF will be available free. Oh, brilliant. Well, I look forward to seeing that and reading that. <laughs> yeah. If you read it from cover to cover, you'll be joining me. Um, I suspect you won't. <laughs> it's a tough job being an editor. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Super. Well, thanks, Amanda, for your time. And um, I look forward to, to seeing the gloves out in action. Brilliant. And thanks very much for having me along today. It's really appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Keep well. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Heather Bicknell is our producer and editor. Thank you, Heather, for your hard work on this episode. Please subscribe to the series and rate us on iTunes or the Google Play Store. Follow us on Twitter at the DWW Podcast. The show notes and transcripts will be available on the website, www.digitalworkspace.works. Please also visit our website, www.digitalworkspace.works, and subscribe to our newsletter. And lastly, if you found this episode useful, please share with your friends or colleagues.